Well, hey, good morning, church. Can we give it up for our sound guys and our worship band? Uh, so, okay, it's funny. I was coming up and I just preached at the traditional service and came here and I actually preached on a sermon that I did several months ago uh, from our series Awaken, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it was so great coming in and seeing all the people here. I just wanted to bring a point of celebration for everybody. Over the last three weeks, not including today, we've averaged over a thousand here on Sunday mornings. Can we give a big thank you to what Jesus is doing there? Now, here's why that matters. That doesn't matter from a numbers perspective because of how big Zion is. That is a celebration about what God is doing in Clear Lake, Iowa. Amen? And that's really what we're celebrating. Now, I was walking up, and you may not have noticed it. We have a giant Connect Four game over on the side there. By the way, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Sorry, I was all business. business I'm, like a, I'm like a spiritual mullet. Business in the front, party in the back. And I, I'm glad some of you all got that. A little Billy Ray Cyrus, achy, breaky heart. So I walk up, and there's this, we have this giant Connect Four game over here. Now, you may not have caught this, but I think the Lord was doing something here. As you guys were singing, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, the entire structure on uh, all the chips came falling down. And I began to think about something. Do you realize that when we proclaim the name of Jesus, it tears down the strongholds and the lies of the world? That's how we defeat the enemy, amen? It's through the name Christ, it's through the name Jesus, when he is proclaimed that we see victory. And that's what our whole series this summer has been about has been around spiritual warfare and how do we find victory in our life? And I found it interesting is that just as we were singing Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, the Connect Four game, everything came down. If you need victory in your life, if you need to see the foundations of lies broken in your life, they're not found in self-help, they're not found within you, they're found within the person and blood and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here and that's why we celebrate. Now, I want you to hear this. If you're new with us, if, if you're looking for a church home, if you're a spiritual wanderer, I hope that you would consider finding a home at Zion. I'll tell you, God is doing some really awesome thing here. Uh, it's a place where you can belong, believe, and become, where you don't have to have life figured out where you can come in your brokenness with your questions. If you're visiting with us from out of town, I know this summer that happens a lot. We have people coming. I'm just so glad you're here. And if you would typically worship at another church, uh, we're so glad you're here this morning with us, especially if you're from out of state. My hope and my prayer is that you will have an encounter with Jesus this morning. Uh, our series, This Is How I Fight, is a series dedicated to helping us better understand the world we live in and the battles raging in the unseen, invisible world around us that the Bible calls the spiritual realm. And that spiritual realm is where we see where the real victory comes from. It's where the real battle takes place. It's not here just in the flesh. This is where we see it lived out, but it begins somewhere else. And this is where we need to be fighting is realizing that our enemy is the devil and the lies that he brings. It's the, the demons and the, the principalities and the warfare that takes place behind the scenes. But God has not left us defenseless. 
God has given us a means to fight. And that means to fight back is not in us. It's found in the person of Christ. It's the authors of the Holy Spirit actually told us that through, that, that through this thing called resistance, by resisting the enemy, that is where we find victory. Satan and his demons are bullies, and like all bullies, bullies are, in truth, are not looking for a fight. They're looking for easy targets. They're looking for people that are defenseless, that people who are weak and vulnerable, who are tired and beat up, lonely and hurt, even people who are hungry. How many of you guys ever get hangry? You know what I'm talking about? That hunger, angry, where you haven't eaten and all of a sudden you find yourself like your ornery? That's when the devil likes to attack is when you're not expecting it. So how do we fight? Well, we fight through resistance. Not in our own strength and power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight through the authority of Jesus and we, we wield the name of God, the word of God, which brings life and freedom. When we do this, the devil flees because the truth is the devil is a coward. The devil is not looking for a fight. He's looking for victims. But, and here's what I want you to hear. If you believe and belong to Jesus, you are not a victim anymore. You are a victor in Christ. Amen? And I think there's too many of us here today that are living in the lie of victimhood. That are not living in the victory that is given to us through Christ Jesus regardless of our circumstances. That you and I get to find freedom. Freedom from the things spoken over us, to us, against us, even the things we speak to ourselves. Now, this series, we started off by talking about what spiritual warfare is. But if that's all we talk about, that's actually not as helpful. It's great to know that there's spiritual warfare. It's great to know that we have the armor of God. But Paul tells us, that we need to be aware of the devil's plans, his schemes. We need to understand the devil's strategies so that we know how to use the weapons that God has given us. And the one thing that we learn from Scripture is that Satan hates resistance. He hates it when you uncover his plans and you choose to not give in to what he's doing. Thank you, Sean. Uh, as we've been talking about his schemes, what we came down to is last, the last couple of weeks we've looked at some of the devil's schemes. Jennifer started us three weeks ago talking about words and how the words that are spoken over us become the words that come out of us. And that if we're not careful, words can cause a lot of damage. Uh, let me give you an example. This 4th of July, how many of y'all had a good 4th of July? Yeah, awesome. I praise God for our independence. I love the fact, but our real 4th of July is found in the cross of Jesus. Amen? Now check this out. So on the 4th of July, my son comes in that afternoon. And this is, he comes in, Dad, the line's on fire. And I'm like, what? The line's on fire. And we go outside, and our power line to our neighbor's house is on fire. And just as we walk out, all of a sudden, there's this small explosion, a blast of light, and the line breaks apart, and our, our neighbors lose power. What happened was this. Someone in our neighborhood lit off a firework, and somehow that firework hit the line. Now, I don't think it was intentional. If it was, they have mad skill, right? 
I don't think it was intentional, but they hit the line and that firework, that errant firework caused destruction. Sometimes our words are like errant fireworks. Sometimes the things we say unintentionally can cause harm. I've got permission to share this from Kate Hopple, our children's ministry director. Um, we had an instance where I had an errant word that I thought was a compliment and it was not. So what happened was this. I come to work one day and she's dressed. And again, I, let me give you an example. My daughter's name is Indy. She's named after Indiana Jones. My wife named her that because we wanted our daughter to be an adventure. We didn't realize we, we were getting what we were asking for. And so I come in and, and she's wearing these green pants and she's got like this tan jacket. And I'm like, you look like you're going on a safari. That was not a compliment apparently. <laughs> And she got really, she got upset with me because what I thought was a compliment, she actually heard differently. And it was like that firework. I said something not realizing that what I was saying was causing harm. When we look at our words, we have to realize that our words have impacts, don't they? And the devil uses words that are spoken out of us to impact other people. But also all of us have words that have been spoken over us. Then last week, we talked about how the enemy uses fear, and specifically the fear of man. That the fear of man is one of those things that we tend to make decisions based on our fears. And the enemy knows that if he can come after us with our fears, that he'll get a hold of us. We looked at the story of Saul, and Saul could have been a great king, but instead Saul feared men more than he feared the opinions of God. And as a result, Saul made some really bad decisions. Here are some of the fears that we deal with. And I, I want you to hear this. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of being unlovable or useless. Fear of being a failure or not being liked. Fear of insignificance. Fear of looking foolish or dumb. Fear of what could go wrong. Fear of being unwanted. Fear of pain. Sometimes even fear of fear, fear of losing control or being powerless, fear of rocking the boat or upsetting other people. As I read that, how many of you can relate to at least one of those fears? Come on now, let's be honest. If you can't relate to one, you have a fear of being caught lying. That's, that's what you have a fear of. We all have one of those fears that play into us and the devil likes to use those because how Satan works, Satan is conniving. He realizes that if he were just to come up and attack you himself, you'd recognize him. So he uses people. He gets other people to do his dirty work. And that's how Satan uses fear and the fear of man to get in the way of what we're doing. This morning, we're going to look at another one of Satan's attacks, another weapon in his arsenal, another one of his strategies and schemes. And here's what it is. It's the fear of not having enough. The fear of missing out, the fear of lack. If you have your Bible, or if you have the Zion app or Zion Facebook page, if you want to stand with us, I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 4. Would you stand with me as we read from Philippians chapter 4? And I'm going to give you a second if you can find this verse, again, either through your Bible app, on your Bible itself, or on our Facebook page, Zion's Facebook page, or even on the Zion app. This is found in Philippians chapter 4. All right, if you have it pulled up, if you would read out with me Philippians 4, 10 through 13. 
I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You may be seated. I'm currently reading a book with a group of my guy friends called Daring Greatly by an author named Brene Brown. And this book focuses on the power, the importance of vulnerability. If you've never read it, uh, I'll tell you, it's a book that makes you super uncomfortable as you're reading it because here's the thing. Vulnerability can be terrifying, can't it? I want you to think about a moment of vulnerability when you were vulnerable and someone hurt you in that. I can tell you I've experienced that. And isn't that the fear of vulnerability? It's the fear, what if people take advantage of me? What if I'm not strong enough? What if I get hurt? What if they betray me? What if I come across looking weird or unlovable or unwanted? At the root of the fear of vulnerability is the fear of not being wanted. The fear of something going wrong and the fear of fear itself. Part of our American ideology is the notion that real strength is found in the power to handle life and its problems all on our own. And we see this in the church all the time. I see this in people who love Jesus is this idea that they need to go it alone. We must be invulnerable because real strength lies within. But the Bible says something very differently. One of the ways the fear of vulnerability plays itself out is through the fear of not having enough. Not having enough, not being enough, not being strong enough, not gifted enough, not liked enough, not wealthy enough. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. It's something that I think a lot of us can relate to. I know that I can. Brene Brown writes this. For me... And for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next thought is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours in the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. How many of you have ever said, I didn't get enough sleep, come on. How many of you ever said, I wish I had more time, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough whatever, right? Before we, now listen to what she says next. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we are already feeling inadequate. Already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. She then goes on to say, we go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack, this internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity that lives at the very heart of jealousy, greed, prejudice, and many of the arguments in our life. 
Now, I'm so grateful for the work of people like Brene Brown. In recent scholarship, psychology, we're starting to uncover this area of lack that we see. But here's what I want you to hear. They're not saying anything new. They're actually affirming what the authors of the Bible have been saying for centuries through the stories of God's chosen, loved, but incredibly broken people. People like you and me. None of us have our stuff put together. Amen? As Brennan Manning says, all of us are like cheeses sliding off crackers, right? None of us got it figured out. Brene is actually connecting to a theme we find through the pages of Scripture. And that theme is this, fear and scarcity. We see that fear in the very beginning of the garden. Adam and Eve were given this beautiful garden to care for, to tend to, to work in, that they had the intimate relationship with God and one another, and yet it wasn't enough. When the enemy lied to them, the way he deceived was by getting them to focus on what they lacked. Did God really say Why does God get to know wisdom, what's right and wrong? Why can't you know it? Israel in the wilderness, when they were in the desert, God rescues them, brings them, delivers them from Pharaoh and slavery. They go through the Red Sea. God does all these miracles. And as they're going to the promised land, like it hasn't even been a couple months, they're in the promised land or heading to the promised land. And immediately they begin to say, it would have been better if we, if we lived back in, in Egypt because at least we had food there. And so God provides for them. God gives them quail and he delivers literally a heavenly bread called manna. And the only command God says is this, only collect enough to eat. The only exception is on Friday night, you can collect enough so that you have food through the Sabbath, which was Saturday. Otherwise, only collect enough. But if you don't, what you collect will go rotten immediately. And sure enough, there were those in Israel who always had to collect more. Why? Because sometimes nothing is enough. This fear that Satan uses, that fear of not having, not getting, not being enough. Let me say this again. What Satan wants to play on are our fears of not having, not getting, not being enough. See, sometimes scarcity isn't about things you have. Sometimes it's not about time. Sometimes the scarcity you have is the scarcity that you're not enough. That you're not enough for your spouse that you're not enough for your children, that you're not enough for your job, you're not enough for you. And sometimes that fear, when it gets a hold of you, you end up making bad decisions. Decisions that aren't what God has for you because you're making them out of fear of lack. So how do we fight this? Well, this morning we're gonna take a look at another king. And let me just give you a brief history here, very brief. Israel, before Israel had kings, they had prophets and priests and judges. They were the leaders of Israel because what they did is they were spokespeople for God. Yahweh would speak through them. But eventually the Israelites looked around at all the great nations and all the other nations around them had something they didn't, a king. So the Israelites said, God, give us a king. And so God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. 
And the problem with the king is that the, it's a man-made invention. God wants to be king. So I'm going to give you a king. And the first king they got was a guy named Saul. King Saul was tall. He was handsome. He came from a well-known family. And Saul looked the part of the king. The problem was he lacked something internally. He had deep fear. We talked about him last week. Saul loses his anointing. And even though without that anointing, he reigned in Israel for 42 years. 42 years, he reigned as king, but he lacked the anointing of God. And as a result, when he lost that anointing, God gave it to a young shepherd named David. David eventually becomes king. The problem with David, David had his own brokenness, didn't he? I mean, if we're honest, and if I, I want to tell you, if you read the pages of scripture, it feels like David did far worse things than Saul, uh, Saul ever did. David raped and murdered, but there was a thing. David was a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean he was perfect. When David was confronted with the sin, unlike Saul, David repented. David confessed. David acknowledged he loved God, but he was a broken human being. By show of hands, how many of you love God, but are still broken people? Come on now. I love God, but I'm a broken man. I love God, but I'm not a complete person. I love God, but I've still got those areas in my life that God is trying to work in. This is why Jesus came. We need the gospel. Well, one of David's desires was to build God's temple, but God says, listen, David, I love that you want to build me a house. One, I never asked for it. I never asked for a house for the Lord, but I love that you want to do that. But here's the problem. While you're a man after my own heart, your entire reign has been filled with bloodshed. You've been at war constantly. And I'm not a God of war. I'm a God of love and mercy and grace. So I'm not going to let you build my house. But I'll let your son. David dies and his son Solomon ends up becoming king. Solomon starts off as one of Israel's best kings. He's incredibly wise. He is, he, he is someone who follows in the footsteps of David and that he begins with loving God. But here's the problem. If you were here about a month ago, we talked about generational sins. I hope you remember that. Sometimes they call it generational curses. But here's the idea is that there are sins, habits, beliefs, and behaviors that can be passed down through generation. And one of the sins that passed down to Solomon was lack. As wise as Solomon was, Solomon dealt with the fear of not having enough. Now, I want to share some of the things, some highlights from Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we actually find Solomon did some pretty remarkable things. He wrote a famous love letter in the Old Testament called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Solomon also wrote the book of Proverbs where he collected and gathered wisdom throughout history and some of his own. And he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes that talks about the foolishness of everything that we chase in life is never enough. He started off his reign incredibly well. He got to build God's temple. At one point, Israel continued to flourish underneath Solomon's rule. So there's a story in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon falls asleep and the Lord appears to Solomon and says, Solomon, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon wisely turns to the Lord in his dream and says, all I ask for is wisdom. Wisdom to be a good king. Wisdom to rule well. 
And the Lord gives Solomon wisdom. And then he says, because you asked for wisdom, I'm also going to give you great wealth. I'm going to give you great fame. You're going to be known throughout the world. Solomon started off really well and incredibly wise. He eventually got all the things that what wisdom brings because God gave him wisdom in spades. But, man, I always hate that word, but. Anybody else hate that word, but? <laughs> because the minute you say, but, it means what you just said. Now it doesn't, doesn't matter, does it, right? When, my, when we discipline my children, I, the minute I say, I love you, but, the love you gets negated. Solomon was wise, but... As Solomon got older, he never dealt with that generational sin of not having enough. Some of you might be familiar with Solomon. Solomon was known for having a thousand wives. In reality, he didn't have a thousand wives. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Still, that's 900 and 999 too many, right? Here's the thing. I have one wife. I have a hard enough time just being a good husband to her. I can't fathom having a thousand women in my life that I have to care for and doing that well. But here's what we don't realize. See, what we think is the reason why Solomon had a thousand wives is because he had a lust problem. But that's actually not what was going on. See, each of the wives that he took, one of the, the laws that God gave the Israelites, he says, listen, I don't want you to marry outside of Israel. Now, I want you to be careful hearing this. In our culture today, we might hear that God is a racist, that God promotes racism. That's not what's going on here. The reason why God commanded the Israelites not to marry from people outside of Israel had nothing to do with the color of skin, had nothing to do with ethnicity. What it had to do with is that every other nationality had other gods. And if you married into them, you would bring their gods into Israel. Israel already struggled with idolatry. Solomon starts off, but the very first person he, he marries is an Egyptian woman. Now, most marriages were not based on love. Our culture, we marry because we love, don't we? I married Lisa because I loved her. But in the ancient world, and even in parts of the world today, they didn't marry for love. They married for political alliance. They married so that they could build relationships between family, increase wealth. Solomon marries an Egyptian woman because he wants to expand Israel. He wants to expand his influence. But he's not satisfied with just, with just Egypt. He then marries women from other influential leaders and nationalities. Every one of those 700 wives were not about sex, what they were about was Solomon wanting more. Solomon wanting more wealth, more power, more fame. Because he didn't feel like he had enough. The 300 concubines, which were the other part, that might have been something else. This isn't the time or place to talk about all that. But here's the deal. The reason why Solomon had these is what Solomon struggled with, as wise as he was, he didn't feel like he had enough. And in chasing enough, Solomon actually became a fool. The wisest king in all of Israel's history eventually became the most foolish king. And at the end of his life, the man who wrote books on wisdom acted incredibly foolish. He did not have enough. There was a lesson in scarcity to be learned in Solomon. Now, 
Proverbs 13.20, which is written by Solomon, says this, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Solomon actually wrote the words that said, listen, wise people hang out with wise people, and if you hang out with unwise people, you act foolishly. We all know that. If you have children, we know that, right? When children, when our children hang out with unwise people, they make unwise decisions. Here's what happens. I get older and somehow I think that rule doesn't apply to me anymore. That somehow because I'm older, I'm married, I have kids, that somehow hanging out with unwise people isn't going to impact me. And yet, is that true? No. This is an axiom, a truth that goes throughout time. When you hang out with foolish people, eventually you'll do foolish things. We need wisdom, and part of what Solomon, as he ignored his own advice, he eventually turned to the gods of his wives and walked away from the God of Israel, the God who had blessed him with wisdom and favor in the first place. The enemy knew the best way to get to Solomon was through something I think most of us tend to struggle with, the fear of not enough, a scarcity mentality. Now, I'm pretty sure that there's no one here today who is going to follow in Solomon's path and have 700 wives or husbands or anybody else. One, because it's illegal, but two, no. But let's be honest. The fear of not having enough, the fear of not being enough or getting enough can creep its way into all of us, can't it? Take a moment and think about the areas in your life where that fear of not having enough is leading you to make bad decisions, things that you know Christ doesn't want for your life. I can tell you that when the devil attacks, he attacks through life circumstances. He brings triggers, things that he knows are going to make us react instead of respond. Here are some of the triggers that the devil uses to get into the way so that you move into the fear of scarcity. The first is comparison. It's when you find yourself comparing yourself to someone else. It's when you look at your friend or your neighbor who has more and all you see is what you don't have. Or it's the job promotion. Somebody gets the promotion you wanted, you didn't get it, and so you fall into scarcity. Or how about jealousy and envy? which have their root in what somebody else has that either you want or you feel you deserve. A third one that I'll tell you is so prevalent in our culture right now for our children. And I believe if there's one generational sin that's being passed down to our kids, and if we don't deal with it now, is going to continue, is entitlement. Entitlement is the belief that you didn't get something you feel you deserved, whether you earned it or worked for it or not. You simply are entitled to it. This is so tough because entitlement has creeped in to so much of our culture. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised when I meet 21-year-old, 22-year-olds who are fresh out of college and want to be making what somebody who's been working in the field for 30 years because, well, I'm awesome. I mean, after all, I've gotten trophies in everything, right? I got a trophy for showing up. I got a trophy for this. And we've created this sense of entitlement in our children. And what that does, sadly, then, is it leads to an insatiability. 
That's the next fear. When we have these other ones, what we find is an insatiability within me that tells me nothing I have is enough. And all of these sins are rooted in the fear of lack. The fear that somehow I'm missing. Scarcity can be found in all of these areas. Not enough money, time or resources, not enough self-worth or respect. So you look to people to give you that worth and respect by any means necessary. Sometimes it's not enough love, not enough power and control, not enough knowledge, not enough peace, not enough security. Or if you're like me, not enough experiences. The lie of scarcity leads us to chase after things that ultimately will never satisfy. Now, I want to, again, I want to highlight another concern I have for our current generation, and this includes my own things, my own kids. One of the things that I am concerned with, with for my children and every generation after them is that we have taught them through technology, through sports, through social media, that they deserve to be entertained. That my job as a parent, your job as a parent, as a grandparent, is to make sure that our children are constantly entertained because heaven forbid our kids be bored. Boredom is good. Boredom teaches you that sometimes it's okay to be content. How many of you right now would go for a little boredom in your life? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like every once in a while, we chase experiences and excitement. And there are sometimes we're like, man, I just would like to be bored for a little bit, right? We need to cheat, teach our children that boredom is okay. So how do we resist and defeat the devil's lie of never having enough? Well, I had a realization this week. And in fact, it's a little bit of a confession, we did a series several months ago where we talked about scarcity. So this is not a new topic. But I want to tell you, as I began to explore this, and I began to look at scarcity mindset, I think I taught the opposite of scarcity incorrectly. I want you to know that as a pastor, as somebody who teaches God's word, I take my study of God's word very seriously. And the first person I preach to is not you, it's me. And here's what I learned. I was taught, and this is what I taught you, is that how we defeat scarcity, a scarcity mindset, is to have an abundant mindset. And we looked at uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and how the disciples didn't think they had enough, but Jesus understood. And now I, I want you to hear this. I still believe in the abundancy of Christ. John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I believe that's true. Jesus never once preached scarcity. The gospel of Jesus, the good news is Jesus, is one of, found, of abundant life found in him. But here's where I think I got it wrong. I taught that how we defeat scarcity is with an abundant mentality, but the problem becomes this. Now I'm just chasing abundance. And let me ask you, when is enough enough? When, how do you measure abundance? How do I know when I have an abundance of time? How do I know that I have an abundance of friends or money or love? I, I want you to hear my theology is not perfect. It's always growing. And this is where I was confronted with the words of Paul in Philippians. We don't chase abundance. We chase contentment. What we can chase is abundance if that abundance is Jesus. Jesus. 
Did you hear that? If you hear nothing else right now, I want you to hear this. The only time that we chase abundance is the abundance of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ fully satisfies. Amen? When we are chasing Jesus, when the abundant life we're chasing is the life found in Jesus, that is praiseworthy, that is excellent, that is holy. But if you're chasing the abundance of anything else, you're just facing another form of scarcity. Because you're never going to have enough money. How many of you remember this when you were a kid, you were like, Oh my gosh, I have $100. I remember the first time I got $100 and I was like, I'm rich. I can buy transformers. Like I was pumped. And then I got a little bit older and I said this, if I could only make, if I made like $12,000 a year, I'd be, that'd be awesome. And then it was 25 and then 30. And every time it's like a goldfish, you put a goldfish and it grows to the size of its tank. That's what our scarcity, abundant mentality leads to is once we have that thing, if it's not Jesus, if our abundance is not Jesus, eventually what we have is never enough. It's never a big enough house. It's never a nice enough car. It's never a big enough boat. It's never enough home runs. And here's the part. When your kids play sports, if you teach them to chase the thrill of sports, Instead of just seeing sports as a means to, not a means to an end, but it's just something you do, they'll continue to find their worth and identity in their performance and what they do instead of who Jesus has already called them and who they are in Christ. Amen? The same is true with jobs. The same is true with your marriage. The same is true with children. Our abundance is to be found in Christ because the problem with chasing abundance is that your definition of abundance continues to change as your resources increase or decrease. Once you have money, you need more money. Once you have fame, you need more fame. Once you have that job, um, before I entered into ministry, 2000 is when I became a youth pastor. And I remember before that, my whole mentality was this, man, If I could just be a youth pastor, that would be incredible. And then I became a youth pastor, and guess what? It wasn't enough. It didn't fulfill me. It didn't make me feel validated. Then it was, well, if I could just become a teaching pastor and get my education, and then I became a teaching pastor, and guess what? It wasn't enough. And then it was, well, maybe if I'm a lead pastor, and then I became a lead pastor, and guess what? It still wasn't enough because my worth And identity is not found in what I do. My worth and identity, your worth and identity is not found in what you do. It's found in whose you are. We must stop chasing abundance unless that abundance is Jesus. So I want to look very briefly, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here. I want to look at what Paul said in Philippians 4 because I believe how we fight how we resist the fear of scarcity, the fear of lack, is contentment in Christ. And that when Christ is found, when we learn to be content, when we look at Paul, listen to this. Paul, when he became a Christian, literally lost his family. When Paul became a Christian, his family disowned him. He lost his reputation. He lost, at one point, literally went to prison. He lost his freedom. He lost his health. 
He lost his money, his security. Eventually, Paul lost his own life for the sake of Christ. And yet, if Paul was standing up here right now, Paul would 100% still say he had an abundant life because what his abundance in was, was in God's grace, mercy, and love. Paul's abundance was Jesus. God wants us to chase abundance when Jesus is our abundance, but we resist the lie of scarcity through contentment. Would you stand with me? For most of us, you will never have enough money. You will never have enough time. You will never have enough freedom. You will never have enough love. You will never have enough power. You will never have enough, pick whatever you want, whatever poison it will be, it will never be enough. Which is why Paul tells us his grace is enough. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has been dealing with a physical illness. Some of you here are fighting cancer. You're fighting addiction. Some of you are fighting physical things that we're praying for healing. We're praying for God to take care of. But God doesn't always answer prayer the way we want him to. Paul pled to the Lord three times to take away a physical illness. And here's what God spoke to him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this physical ailment away. But the Lord said to me, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You want to know why we need, why we need needs? Because my needs remind me that I need a savior. That my needs, my insufficiency, my lack should drive me to Jesus, nothing else. Because everything else will never satisfy. We resist the lie of scarcity when Jesus becomes our enough. When we are content in Christ. I want to read again what Paul said, but I'm gonna, this time I want to read all of it. Ready? Here we go. Check it out. I rejoice, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. Did you catch that? What Paul literally just said there was this. I've not always been content. I've chased after the wrong thing. Paul just confessed a scarcity mindset. He had to learn contentment. You and I need to learn contentment. You're not born with it. It's not something you just magically get. It is something we must learn. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, whether I am rich or I am poor, whether I am in good health or poor health, whether I have everything I want or nothing I want, whether I get that job promotion or I don't, whether I get that next project or I don't, whether I win or I lose, whether I fail or succeed. What I have learned is to be content in Jesus. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Contentment resists the lie of the devil. 
when you learn to find contentment in Christ, everything else pales in comparison. Sometimes I picture Paul as having all of this life, this Christian life figured out. But just like you and me, Paul was a work in progress. Paul was messed with by the enemy. Sometimes he won battles, sometimes he lost them. But what Paul ultimately understood is that the secret to contentment is Jesus. So how do you and I foster contentment in a discontented world? The first is vulnerability. It's having people in your life that you can acknowledge where you have a fear of lack. Having, whether it's your spouse or your best friend, having people that you can feel vulnerable enough to acknowledge that weakness. Second is confession. We must confess those weak spots of wanting more. When we confess, we bring dark into light. We expose the lies for what they are. It's confessing our addiction to more. Third, you must stop comparing. Stop comparing your sins. Stop comparing your successes. All of us are in need of a savior. Amen? Stop comparing yourself to what others have. See, things will always look better on the outside looking in. The more stuff you have just means you eventually want more stuff than that because that stuff gets boring. There are people in your life who seem to have their lives put together. They don't. There are families in their lives who seem to have everything they want. They don't. There are people in your life who seem to have nothing and yet they're incredibly content. Fourth, and here's the big one, practice gratefulness. What are you grateful for today? Kate Hopple has begun a practice of sharing her gratefulness every day. She actually writes down what she's grateful for. Did you know you cannot be grateful for something and not feel like it's enough at the same time? It's impossible. You can't be thankful for what God is giving you and then be looking at what you don't have. We need to be grateful more. Do not confuse contentment for settling or for apathy. Contentment is rooted in gratefulness and thankfulness. What are you fighting for? What are you grateful for? And then lastly, take your eyes off yourself. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. As hard as it, as it is to admit, when I suffer from a scarcity mentality, it's almost always because I've stopped looking at Jesus and I've only kept my eyes on me or what somebody else has. When I love and care for others, when I find ways to give, to bless others, I'm reminded of how blessed I am. Contentment means I have enough. Amen? I want to leave you with this challenge before we end. What do you need to be grateful for today that you haven't expressed? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your life, your health. Maybe it's your job. Jesus wants us to find our contentment in him because everything else pales in comparison. Let's come and bring our tithes and offering. Let's worship the Lord. God is good. Amen. Can we just give a thank you to the Lord? God is good. Let's come and worship the Lord.